Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. The title of my message is BB's and Being by Yourself. BB's and being by yourself. Um, My wife and I, we've got three kids, um, Tegan, Cohen, and Zeke. And uh, one of the cool things about, this is them right here. uh, One of the cool things about living in our neighborhood over on the the border of Norco and Riverside is there are tons of kids like in our neighborhood and then sort of the the attaching neighborhoods around the block and everything. And so um, all the kids are sort of roaming around often in like a neighborhood gang. And Tegan's sort of aged out of it a little bit or so she thinks until it's time for a photo shoot. Then she's like, I need all you guys to group up and we're overalls together and they're not having it. Uh, but weirdly, Zeke is kind of the ringleader, okay? He's the youngest of our kids, but he's just, he's got a big personality and just people love hanging out with him and, and doing stuff with him. And so oftentimes I'll get home from work and there's just a ton of kids. There's a whole gang of kids in our backyard. And in fact, at our house, we've nicknamed it uh, Zeke and the Cool Water Ruffians because we live on Cool Water Drive and that's their little gang. And uh, I can't wait till they start robbing stagecoaches. It's coming, it's coming. And they're actually a surprising amount of stagecoaches in Norco. Uh, so that's possible. And so um, they're back there and there's tons of stuff for them to do back there. There's games and they've, there's like dartboards and trampolines and basically any dangerous thing uh, that a kid could do in a backyard. Parents send their kids over to our house to do uh, so they can sue us if something goes wrong. And so there's all these kids in our backyard doing stuff and I'm, I'm at home hanging out and I'm talking to Gretchen and Zeke comes in and he bursts in the back door and he's, of course, he's shirtless and he's all sweaty and he, he's barefoot, and, which none of this is abnormal. This is just normal life with him. And, but he's grabbing his back and he's like walking around all weird. And he has this like kind of frightened, nervous look on his face. And if you're a parent, you know this look. A kid has a certain look um, that says, I almost died and it scared me, but I don't want to tell you about it, Right. And, and he had this sort of panic look. And so I'm like, dude, what happened? And he was like, um, I don't want to tell you because I don't want to get in trouble. And I'm like, well, just, just tell me and we'll roll the dice and see what happens. And he's like, uh, Ryder shot me. And I'm like, what? He shot me. Well, what had just happened a month before is that my boys were gifted, uh, not by our family, just by somebody who goes to the church. They were like, these boys need BB guns. And so both the boys got BB guns for Christmas. And so they were playing some game in the backyard. And one of Zeke's friends shot him. And I'm like, what? How did this happen? He's like, yeah, it really hurts. And he won't stop. He's out there right now. And so I'm like, I got to go deal with this. So I go out in the backyard and I find the kid that it is. And he's like, he's perched, right? And all the other kids are hiding. And I'm like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, uh, uh, nothing. We're just playing. And I'm like, what are you playing? He's like, we're playing sniper. And I'm like, mm. I'm like, when you say we're playing sniper, here's the reality. If you think you're playing sniper, but nobody else knows you're playing sniper, you're not playing sniper. You're a sniper. Okay, it's not a game anymore, right? It's kind of like when you're like, oh, we're dating, but they're not, they don't know that, right? You're a stalker, okay? Everybody's got to be on board for it to actually be a partnership that it's okay, right? 
And so I'm like, man, you can't, you shot him. You can't do that. And he's like, I'm sorry, can I, can I see it? And then all the other kids are like, yeah, we want to see it. And so they all gather around and they're like trying to look. And he's like, it's right here. And they're like, is it still in there? And he's like, no, it's not. And he was bummed because he wanted to have a BB in his body, I think, for the rest of his life, which does kind of sound like something a boy would want, right? Um, and I, I, was, I was actually driving in my car, and I was telling uh, this guy I haven't talked to for a really long time. Uh, he doesn't live around here. And uh, sometimes when I'm in my car, like, I just I think of like, man, who haven't I talked to for a while? And I just call him up while I'm in the car. And I called this guy, and I was telling him this story, and we're both laughing hysterically. And, and uh, I got to the part about the BB and him getting shot and all that sort of stuff. And uh, he was just like, oh man, that is the life. I would love it if one of my friends shot me in the back with a pee pee. And I laughed because like, that's such an absurd thing for a grown man to say. And he did not laugh. And then that made me feel uncomfortable. And then I just sort of sat there for a minute. And then he followed up by saying, because that would mean that I had somebody in my life that cared enough about me to go shooting with me. And, and then it felt really uncomfortable. And the space between us felt really heavy and awkward. And I, I felt sick to my stomach. And I, I knew that like, he wasn't joking. I, I didn't really know what to say. I knew that he was trying to tell me that things weren't going great. That, that he was hurting. That he needed this phone call maybe more than he wanted to admit. And I wonder, I wonder if you have ever had a moment like this where you were brave enough to admit how alone you'd been feeling. Like maybe you didn't even intend to, to, to do it. Like maybe, maybe you didn't even realize that you'd said it until the words had like fallen out of your mouth and it was too late to take them back. And so you just sort of sat there and you studied the face of the person across from you, trying to guess what they were thinking about you, maybe debating inside yourself whether you were going to you know, pretend that you were just joking and she didn't really mean it. Except in that moment, you, you, you couldn't have meant anything more. And given the choice, you would have gladly taken a BB in the back over the deep, dull ache of disconnection. And if you know that feeling, if you've been in that place before, you should know that you're not the only one. In fact, loneliness is a way bigger issue than, than many of us are even aware of. Um, sociologists have started referring to what we're experiencing as a full-blown loneliness epidemic, and the research appears to back that belief. Like Some of the stats that I've come across over the, the past couple months of just researching this topic are astounding. Just to share a few of them with you, three out of five adults in the United States consider themselves lonely. 47% say they frequently feel left out. 54% claim that they either always or often feel like no one really knows them. Four out of 10 people over the age of 45 say the TV is their primary companion. One in five millennials, these are people that are ages 26 to 41, say that they have no friends at all. And over 60% of Gen Zers, these are kids ages 10 to 25, confess feeling lonely multiple times a week. It's taking a toll. 
And loneliness isn't just creating a mental health crisis, it's, it's contributing to a physical health crisis as well. Loneliness actually creates the same sort of fight or flight hormones uh, that you experience when you're under physical attack. That feeling that you get if somebody were to jump out of the bushes, right, and scare you, the automatic response that your body would have is the same sort of thing that happens when we experience deep loneliness. Uh, It spikes cholesterol, blood pressure, and cortisol levels. It has lasting effects on your body. It reconfigures your brain. It contributes to persistent inflammation, which lowers your immune system, which makes you susceptible to all sorts of sickness and disease. And we're seeing this play out. Lonely people are 32% more likely to have a stroke, 29% more likely to to contract heart disease, and 64% more likely to develop dementia. Loneliness is worse for our health than not exercising. It's as harmful as being an alcoholic, and it's twice as harmful as being obese. Loneliness, statistically speaking at least, is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It's brutal. And the most astounding thing about all of these things I've shared with you is that all these stats are pre-pandemic. So these stints of forced isolation and online political reactionism over the last two years has definitely exacerbated things. I think we're also likely underestimating the problem because more often than not, lonely people, they have trouble admitting they're, they're lonely like to other people, but even like at times to themselves. So what is it that we're even talking about? Loneliness, just to give us all a working definition, loneliness is a state of deep sadness that stems from feeling unattached, unseen, unknown, unsupported, unloved, or uncared for. In in other words, you know, loneliness isn't necessarily about being alone. It could be, right? But uh, it's possible to be alone and not feel lonely. Where are my introverts at, right? Like we know this experience. The inverse is also true. It's possible to be surrounded on all sides with all sorts of people and be lonely. To look around at the sea of people surrounding you and just think none of these people are my people. And if you feel like any of this describes you, I want you to know, first off, as we jumpstart this series, that you are not alone in your loneliness. And you're also not meant to be alone. Did you know that the the first negative thing that is ever spoken about humanity by God is not about sinfulness, it's about loneliness. There's this this poem that opens up the, the Bible. So if you get past like the section where someone was like, you know, wrote it to you and put your name in it and then the thing with the table of contents, the very first section is Genesis. And Genesis opens with a creation poem. And in the midst of this poem is this really interesting line, this thing that God says that I want to zero in on. He says this, it's Genesis chapter two, verse 18. God says, it is not good for this person to be alone. And so I'll make a helper who is just right for him. Now, there's this pattern um, 
in this opening poem of Genesis that sort of goes like this, God would create something and then he would step back and he would examine it. He would breathe it in and then he would say this line, it is good. And he does this multiple times. There's sort of this rhythm, the way that songs and poetry sort of work where we see this repeated over and over again. Then he, he gets to the pinnacle of his creation. He creates a human being and he doesn't just say it is good. He says, it is very good. He's very excited about people, right? Actually, at this stage, it's just person. He's excited about person. Who's named Adam, which literally just means the human. And then at this point in the poem, the writer disrupts the pattern. He describes God looking at this being that he created, who, by the way, is, is sinless and in perfect health and surrounded by nature and beauty and animals, this human has a close connection with his creator, God himself. But even though all that stuff is true, God recognizes that there's something still missing, that something is incomplete, that there is no one like him for him to relate to, that this person is alone. And he's not just alone, he's aware of his aloneness, he's lonely. And to this, God says this really simple 10-word statement. It's not good for this person to be alone. And one thing that's important to understand about Genesis is that it's not just about something that happened to these people once upon a time. It's, it's really a glimpse at the way people work, at the way God works, at who God is and who you are. And what this is telling us is that you are not created to be alone. Like God did not design you to live unattached, unseen, unknown, unsupported, unloved, or uncared for by other people. Isolation was never God's intention. It's not good. And you don't need me to tell you that, right? You can feel it. You've had moments of loneliness and isolation, and you realized that it, it wasn't working, that it was robbing you of something essential. I wonder if you've ever noticed that like almost every form of punishment when it comes to humans involves some kind of isolation. If someone does something like horrible in our society, right? Like we, we throw them in prison, right? Which is what? It's an isolation from society. And if they do something really horrible in there, we put them in solitary confinement where they're truly isolated. But like, we don't just reserve it for prisons. Like we do it in our own homes, right? Your kid does something that's horrible. You're like, how dare you speak to your mother like that? Go to your room, right? Which is just like prison with toys. And they go in there and they're isolated, and there's a reason why, there, there's a theme here. There's a reason why this is so effective because it doesn't feel good. I, loneliness is a form of torture. And it incentivizes people to do something different than they did to get put in this position because most of us will do anything to avoid it once we've gotten a taste of it. And in this Genesis poem, God intervenes to, to change things. He makes this first person another person, a partner. He crafts him someone to connect with. 
And I think it's easy to think about this in a, in a romantic sort of way. And there is romance here in this story. I mean, God definitely tells them to be fruitful and multiply, which is like a euphemism for something that's rated R. And so they do that. They obey, you know, because they want to be compliant with God, you know. But I don't think that is the big takeaway here, right? I don't think the big takeaway is that, um, you know, he found, he found uh, a romantic partner and that fixed everything. Because the reality of it is, you can't solve loneliness with sex. I mean, some of you have tried, right? Some of you are still trying. And maybe, you know, partially, things about that experiment are enjoyable. But it's not working, really. Not in a deep way. Because... We all need more than just a body-to-body connection. We need a heart-to-heart connection. We need a soul-to-soul connection with someone else. And I would argue that the first human didn't escape loneliness because God gave him a lover, but because God gave him a friend. And that's ultimately what he was most desperate for. He needed someone to connect his soul to. Now, this may sound strange to you, but if we go back through human history, the reality of it is our ancestors viewed close friendship as the highest form of love. Now, this kind of blows our minds because this is not the way that we think in our current society, right? When we think of the highest form of love, we think of romance, right? We think of marriage, but our ancestors instantly thought of deepened friendship. Ancient literature often refers to it as intimate friendship. And that, that may make you feel awkward or giggle a little bit because that word to us today in, in our Western world feels more romantic than platonic. But um, these people wouldn't have seen it this way. It, it really just means a close, personal, committed friend. And, and part of the reason that our ancestors viewed intimate relationships as the highest form of love is because, um, you know, nobody really expected to experience like deep friendship inside of their marriage. Sadly, in, in ancient tribal cultures, marriage was more about mutual survival and strategic alliance and having kids and managing property. Um, you married for utility, but you had friends for intimacy those deep needs of feeling attached and seen and known and supported and loved and cared for came from your close friendships. And if you are fortunate today to have found a romantic partner to share your life with, and you have the experience where you're getting some of these needs met from your spouse, I would argue that it's, it's only because you have a connection that is deeper than sex. That's a great bonus, But what is really driving the connectedness is something more. And what is that something? A lot of the the sort of the way that we view the idea of friendship in the Western world today um, stems from uh, an ancient Greek thinker, uh, philosopher named Aristotle. And, And he was actually present around the time of the early church. And so these ideas would have been floating around at the time the early church was forming. And even now, we sort of see life in a lot of ways through this framework of friendship. And, and his big contribution to uh, the idea or categories of friendship was that he said that there are three types of friendships, essentially. That there are friendships of utility, pleasure, 
and virtue. Now I wanna unpack these for you in terms of what he meant by these things. The, the first category of friendship that Aristotle talks about is what he calls friendships of utility, okay? And so these are mutually beneficial relationships built around shared purposes and proximities. So think of this like maybe that mom that you were friendly with because her kid is on the same team that your kid is on. And so you just sort of see each other. You end up at the same practices in the same games. You're sitting on the same side. You eventually strike up a conversation because why wouldn't you? You're both there. And, uh, you know, there's somebody to chat with. It's kind of nice. You share responsibilities, things that you both need to get done. You take turns doing like coffee and donut runs. You, You take turns carpooling you both sort of benefit. Uh, You met because you're sort of just in the same proximity and you have the same purpose. You want your kids to connect to this team and and the relationship just sort of works, but on a very base, shallow level. It may be like the way in which you're friendly with your you know, your neighbor, because, you know, when she's out of town, um, you know, when you're out of town, she, she sort of steps up and she you, grabs your Amazon packages that you're ordering on vacation and she hides them away so the porch pirates don't get them. And then, you know, when she's out of town, you repay the favor. You go and you feed her seven cats and like, and it's this thing and you're both sort of supporting her. I wish I had seven cats. It'd be awesome. Then... There are, the second category is what he calls friendships of pleasure. Friendships of pleasure, uh, which sort of sounds weird, but I'm gonna leave this word in there just so the junior high boys will giggle. Um, And essentially what this means is uh, friendships of pleasure are mutually enjoyable relationships built around shared activities and interests. So this is sort of people that you just like being around, right? They're just, they're fun to hang with. You have some things in common, like maybe you both, you know, you both like Frisbee and you both like watching the Lakers and you both like drinking PBR. Sometimes you like to do all three at the same time, right? And so there's a, there's a click, you know, like you like nachos. I like nachos. Meanwhile, everyone likes nachos. Okay. And, and so, you know, you seek them out to hang out because you like their company. So as opposed to just sort of like they're there, you might as well, you get kind of, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. This has moved forward a level where you actually, you just like being around them. There's a way in which you click. And so you seek them out. You want to spend time with them and you may even schedule life a little bit around being with them. And then there are what he calls friendships of virtue which are mutually admirable relationships built around shared values and worldviews. And this to Aristotle was sort of the peak of friendship. These are people that you connect with on a soul level, like the relationship is substantive. You admire and respect each other. There's something about being around them that, that, that benefits the both of you. It makes you both better. And you're committed to one another. They encourage and inspire you and you do the same for them. But, but you also question and push and challenge each other that, that helps you to, to grow. And these sorts of relationships, they take time to build. But they're the most meaningful connections we end up having in life. These friendships are like the, the, the ride or die, raw and real in, in it for the long haul, no matter what, like always there for you would help you move a couch or a body, right? Like, I mean, they would take care of your kids if you went to war or prison for whatever you did to that body, right? Like they're gonna be there for you. 
no matter what. These are these sorts of friends. And if you look at this list, pretty much every relationship that you have in life falls into one of these three categories. And they're all great. I think you should collect all three, okay? But the sort of friendships the deepest parts of us are desperate for are our friendships of virtue. Relationships that last, that are deep, that are meaningful, that make us better people. And I think it's actually possible to have friends in the first two categories and still feel completely lonely. Because I think what you're longing for is the third. And in fact, I think these sorts of friendships are the ones that Scripture spends so much time talking about in both the Old and New Testament. Let me read you a couple of things from, from Proverbs about friendship. Proverbs 17, 17 says this, a friend is always loyal and a brother is born to help in a time of need. That's a friendship of virtue. Another translation says, says it this way, uh, that um, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for the time he's needed to fight, which my boys love that part. They're like, let's do it. Let's put on war paint. I'm the sniper now. You know what I mean? I would like, guys, we don't need to go there, okay? Proverbs chapter 18, verse 24 says this. There are friends. I love this because it's in quotes because it's essentially saying there are so-called friends who end up destroying each other, right? Because they're just using each other. It's a friendship of convenience. It's a friendship of, you know, we're both getting something out of it. We're not committed long-term. But then there's a different kind of friend, a real friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's a friendship of virtue. Jesus talks about this sort of friendship in this way. John chapter 15, verse 13. He says, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Like this is the pinnacle of love. It's not having a, a, a romantic experience with someone, but having such close friends where you would give up your life for theirs. And Jesus can be believed when he says this because he lived this. Jesus, who had, there's no recorded history of him having any sort of romance, lays down his life for his friends. One of the, the clearest biblical examples of like two people that share this sort of experience, this intimate friendship is David and Jonathan. Um, David, there's a, a ton of the Old Testament that's dedicated to his life. He ended up being one of the, um, the, the most prominent kings of Israel. And he is famous for having killed Goliath, right? There's this battle between him and this giant and he wins. And, and that was after he was anointed king, but he was a shepherd boy. And I think part of the interesting thing about this friendship is that it just seems on the surface like there's no way these two people are ever going to connect in a really deep way because they're so different. Jonathan lived in the palace. He was the son of the current king who hated David. And by all accounts, it seems like maybe Jonathan should have hated him too. Like David was going to take his place, take his spot, take his destiny. And yet Jonathan was surrounded by people in the palace all the time and yet felt completely alone, lonely. And David, he's on the other end of the spectrum, right? Like he is spending all of his days out by himself, surrounded by sheep. Like all of his best friends were animals, literally. And 
The effect on him was that he also felt lonely. And when these two guys connect, they make a commitment to one another. And because their relationship was so complicated, like it, it was difficult for them to arrange their lives around one another, but they had this, this brotherhood. They were deeply devoted to one another. They made each other better and frequently risked their lives for one another. And it was such a rich and deep friendship that David, when he's reflecting on their connection, he writes this. This is 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 26. He says, how I weep for you, my brother Jonathan. Oh, how much I loved you. And your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of women. Now, some of us are like, wait, what? This makes us feel uncomfortable, right? Because we don't have any category for two dudes who are just friends talking about their love for each other in this way. And yet here's the reality. No one during this time period was embarrassed about describing their close connections this way. David wants his best friend to know that their, their, their connection is deep and meaningful and life-giving, that it's one of the most important things in the world to him. And in fact, these are the types of relationships that sustain virtually every emotionally and spiritually healthy person all throughout the scripture narrative. In fact, these kinds of friendships were so important and valued all through Christian history that there was a practice that was commonly called a, a brothering ceremony. And this was something that happened frequently up through the, the 20th century. It often would take place in a church in which two people, often two guys would essentially gather friends and, and family and they would formally commit their lives to one another. They would platonically pledge their life and their love to each other in a way that really now there's no category for it. Like we really only see this sort of public commitment happen inside of like a marriage ceremony. They wanted their whole community to gather and bear witness to hold them accountable to the loyalty that they had promised to their best friend, no matter what. It was essentially them saying to that person, like, I've got your back always, no matter what. And I want everybody to know that because if I ever break my promise to this person, you all have the right to hold my feet to the fire. Because there's not really anything that maybe we can think of immediately that looks like this in our current culture, it maybe sounds strange to us. And yet there's part of me that thinks like, is it really that bizarre? Like, it doesn't really seem to me all that different than the sort of pledges that people make to one another inside of SEAL teams and street gangs and Lions clubs and squad cars and AA groups and ironworker unions. Because this is such a deep desire inside of us that if we disregard one outlet for it, another one rises to replace it, whether that outlet is healthy or not. Because we can't avoid the way in which we're made. You can't function well without deep friendships. It's what you're made for. And when we live in denial of it, we end up suffering the consequences of its absence. Or, we do the other popular thing. We, we, we simply like stack all of our deep friend needs on the back of our romantic partner. And that always works out real great, doesn't it? 
when you make that one person in your life responsible to meet every relational need that you possibly have, oftentimes, right, it crushes the relationship because no one person can handle that weight. But this is the way that like sort of uh, romantic comedies and romantic culture has sort of set us up to think. Like we want our spouse or our romantic partner to be our lover and our best friend and our confidant and our intellectual equal and our workout buddy and our accountability partner and our part-time therapist and our encourager and our challenger and our social compliment. And some of you are just like, I'm tired just hearing the list. It's too much, too much. Get some friends. Because we are not designed to have all of our deep needs met exclusively by one person. We were created for community. And expecting your romantic partner to be the only deep relationship you have is a recipe for disaster. You need more. But the problem is that some of us have none. There's this observation that one of the sons of David makes who had a front row seat to one of the most incredible friendships of all time. His name was Solomon. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes and and he, he makes this observation about friendship and loneliness. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse nine, two people are better off than one for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. And some of us, this is right where we are. We're in real trouble because our life is falling apart. Things are crumbling around us. Like our dreams are not progressing. Our expectations have been dashed. We've been hurt. We feel stuck. We're going through it and there is no one to help. And if this is you, you are feeling the effects of it. The statistics help, but you don't really need that because you can just look at your own life. You can look at your own health. You can see that something's off, that something's wrong, that something is not working, that you are not who you want to be, that you are not where you want to be in life. Maybe you have this sense that that God is, is looking in on you and observing your life in the same way that he observed the first human that he put in paradise and that he is thinking and feeling the same thing about you. It's, it's not good for this person to be alone. And you feel the weight of that. But you also feel stuck. You're not really sure how to tunnel out. You're not even really sure if friendship is something that you'll ever have or you'll ever have again or you'll ever have in that way Maybe it's not even something that you are capable of or deserve. And if you are in that sort of headspace, I I want you to know before we move any further in this series that you are worthy of friendship, that you are made to be attached and seen and known and supported and loved and cared for. And any voice that is telling you otherwise is not from God. 
And sometimes those voices embed themselves inside of us and we feel like we are fundamentally broken and like friendship is something that will always be beyond our grasp. But that is not the voice of your creator who created you for connection. You want these things because you were made for them. And the God who put those longings deep inside you has no intention of letting loneliness win out. I want to encourage you this morning to choose to believe what he says about you, to lean into him and to let him guide you toward the deep in connections that he's created you for. But I've also got to be honest and tell you, it's going to be work. Real deep in friendships require effort, but that work is worth it. And over the next few weeks of this series, we are going to talk about how to make great friends and, you know, what it looks like to actually maintain and navigate friendships in a world that is busy, where there's so many things to do and so many things coming at us a million miles a minute. We're going to talk about what to do when someone close to you really hurts you. But today, my challenge to you is to simply take inventory of your life. To, to look around your life and look at the connections that you have, the connections that you don't have. Think about these three categories. I wonder what connections you have that are friendships of utility. What friendships of pleasure do you have? What friendships of virtue do you have? For some of you, you're going to realize you have more, like one category stacked way more than another. You're going to realize maybe where the weaknesses in your circle are. And the reason I want you to do this is not to make you feel bad about yourself. It's, it's just for the, the reality that like before you can move forward, you have to get real about where you already are. You have to take an honest inventory of where you are right now. You have to admit to yourself the areas in which you are alone. You have to admit it to yourself and you're going to eventually have to admit it to somebody else in order to move past where you are, it requires awareness and the vulnerability and the risk to move forward. But I think it's worth it. And that's why I think you need to come back these next three weeks because what we're gonna share with you is going to help you know how to do just that. The two other pieces of homework I have for you because people love homework. Um, the first is to take inventory, but the second thing, and these, these two are pretty easy. The second thing is this. It's just something to put on your schedule that I think is a big deal. And that's something is the most spiritual thing we may do all month long. It's called game night. And we are hosting a game night here on February 25th. And here's why we're doing this. Because we all want deep end um, friendships of virtue, but no friendship of virtue starts there. It starts in one of the other two categories. In order to, to get where you want to go, you've got to create more opportunities, intentional opportunities in your life to just connect and be with and hang and get introduced and just spend side-by-side -side time alongside other people to see who you click with. And that's what we hope this night is going to be. We're going to open up our entire campus. Uh, we're going to have sort of rowdy games in Avenue A, like Nine Square in the Air and Wall Ball. We're going to have a whole a bunch of two walls full of video games. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of interactive things in there. We're also going to have board games and card games and all sorts of stuff in here and in the coffee shop. And we want you just to come and meet people and hang out. Uh, wouldn't it be insane if you met your next best friend at game night? I think it's possible. 
I think maybe you might even already know them. You just haven't had enough time with them to go deeper with them. And the, the third piece of homework I want to give you is next week, we are going to open up uh, signups for our groups. And uh, groups are essentially just these small groups of people that sign up to hang out together during one time slot every single week. They get together. Uh, many of them will have like a meal. Some of them will just sit around and have coffee. And the goal is to connect relationally and grow spiritually. Some of them do book studies. Some of them reflect on questions that are connected to the message. Some of them uh, just pray together and do an activity and just have fun and enjoy this company. But, um, you know, I want to encourage you to to win this, uh, win our signups release next week to get on the Church Center app. We're also gonna have a huge display out in the plaza for the rest of the month starting next week and to look at that and to take a chance to risk stepping out and putting yourself around a few other people just to see what might come of it. And I know you're maybe nervous. I think all great relationships start with a ball of nerves and the willingness to risk. And that's my challenge to you. Take that chance. Because the alternative is loneliness. It doesn't work. Would you bow your heads with me across this room? I want to just pray this into your lives today. God, thank you for the life that you've given us, for the love and the grace and the mercy that you continually pour out on us. God, I am grateful even for all of the desires that you've placed inside of us, even the ones that like confuse and frustrate us. It's an awareness of what is possible, of what we're made for. And a lot of us are in this in-between time, this limbo where we, we know there is something more and we don't know how to get from where we are to where we want to be. And yet I pray over these next few weeks as we are willing to open ourselves up to you and your wisdom and your guidance as we are willing not just to believe the things you say, but to actually take the steps you suggest. God, I pray that it would revolutionize our relationships, that we would watch our friendships come alive. God, that we would see ourselves in real time stepping away from loneliness and into connectedness. And God, may it change and transform everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.